No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shatter Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Uh, Tonight, we're very gratified to have a very special guest, and that is Ambassador Michael McFall. Uh, Ambassador McFall uh, is a leading expert on Russia, American foreign policy, and democratic development around the world. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Russia and is currently a professor of political science at Stanford University. He's the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute, I hope I pronounced that right, for international studies, and the Peter, and is the Peter and Helen Bink Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. He's written several books, the latest of which is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Uh, we will undoubtedly want to talk to him about that and, and also what's going on in the world. Ambassador McFall, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm sorry, I should also introduce my co-host, Marilia Duffels, who hasn't been with us in a while. Marilia, thanks for being with us tonight. And uh, yeah, and Ambassador, let's start with the big question that I have. Given your experience as a diplomat, is there any chance, is there any uh, thing in the in, that you can see uh, that would lead you to believe that somehow there can be a diplomatic end to what's going on in Ukraine right now. Is there any diplomatic solution out there to this crisis? Well, that's a very hard question, and I want to say honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, what I can say about what we know about history and what we know about President Zelensky of Ukraine and President Putin of Russia can give us some clues. And I, I've, I know both of those gentlemen. I've known Putin since 1991. Uh, President Zelensky I hosted here at Stanford a year and a half ago, and I talked to his team pretty frequently. So what I guess I, where I would start is by saying, if you look at wars generally, uh, they tend to end, not always, but they tend to end in two tragic ways. Uh, either one side wins and then tells the other side what are the terms, or there's a stalemate on the battlefield, and neither side in the war can advance their interests uh, through war, and then they eventually do some kind of a settlement. Um, right now, neither of those two conditions are present. So obviously, uh, Russia hasn't won this war. Putin hasn't met his 
objectives that he set at the beginning of the war. Uh, likewise, Ukraine uh, has not achieved its maximalist objectives that they've stated, President Zelensky, which is to liberate uh, his territory that has been occupied by Russia, uh, both uh, in the last several months. But he also talks about liberating uh, Crimea, which was occupied back in 2014. Um, and neither is there a stalemate, right? It's still a fluid battlefield. Right now, the momentum is on the side of the Ukrainians. Uh, and as a result, I don't see the permissive conditions yet um, for a negotiation, especially because Putin just a few weeks ago upped the ante. Um, he just a few weeks ago, um, on paper, not in reality, annexed uh, four regions of Ukraine, by, by, by the way, about the size of Portugal. So we're talking about a large chunk of land that he signed a decree uh, ratified then by his parliament. Um, uh, in the Kremlin saying, this is now our territory. And that, I think, makes it even harder for a negotiated solution. Because had he not done that, I could have imagined some kind of agree to disagree about where the borders of the state are, but let's stop fighting. Uh, now that he has taken that uh, escalatory step of annexation, I think it's even going to be harder to find a negotiated solution. Eventually, I think there will be one, but I don't see it anytime soon. Uh, before I let my brilliant co-host ask you a question, <laughs> given that you brought brought up the annexation, what about the fact that it looks like Kyrgyzstan, which is part of the, the if I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is part of the annexed area uh, uh, in, uh, just above Crimea, it looks like the Ukrainians may liberate that area. Does that even complicate it more? Uh, yes. Um, so I think your assessment is correct. Uh, most certainly um, after, you know, they launched a very successful counteroffensive about a month ago up in the north around Kharkiv, the, the second largest city in Ukraine. Now all of their efforts are on retaking the region and the capital city of Kherson. Um, uh, you know, I'm not hard to predict these things, but most certainly momentum is on the side of the Ukrainians. You see the Russians evacuating civilians from from the the capital city to the other side of the river. Um, and uh, if they do take it, then you have this dilemma. If you're Vladimir Putin, you just signed a piece of paper saying you've annexed this region, Kherson, and now you don't control it. And I don't know what happens with that. How does he negotiate uh, a settlement, uh, given that he, he said he was going to annex Kherson? Yeah, very much. Uh, Morelia? Hello, Ambassador. It's an honor to talk to you. I've seen you loads and loads of times on TV. With your well, thanks expert. for watching. Oh, absolutely. You, you've added so much to the, the conversation dating back to, I guess, when, when Robert Mueller was, was the focus. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, I am really interested in sort of the background with your expert knowledge and how you could enlighten us and, and the listeners um, on your take on the Russian culture and how Russian history, which is huge, has shaped the sort of um, social cultural landscape and how that has contributed to this awful autocracy that's Putin and how this may lead to perhaps the people turning against Putin. 
Yeah, that is a big question. You're right. And um, <laughs> cultural arguments always are very difficult to um, assign causation to in political science. Mm-hmm. Because they're such mm-hmm. big things that change slowly. They're hard to say, well, it caused this, but it didn't cause this, right? Um, mm-hmm. But with that caveat, uh, as a preambular statement, I do think uh, it's important to understand Um you know, Russia, for most of its history, has been a dictatorship, right? You go back mm-hmm. several hundred years, the communist days, um, and that that creates some material that Putin can use to make the arguments that he does about why he needs dictatorship at home and imperialism abroad. Um, so that's the first thing to say, and he most certainly mm-hmm. is using those arguments to try to mobilize domestic support for this war. Um, his basic argument is that Ukrainians are not uh, a separate people from Russians. They're just, you know, Ukrainians are just Russians with accents. Uh, our country, mm-hmm. our nation, he wouldn't say our country, he would say our nation was divided artificially by Western powers, and even he blames the Bolsheviks, and now I am reuniting it. And when he makes those arguments, he does invoke Russian culture and history. He says, you know, Ukrainians are culturally and historically just like us, I'm just now righting the wrongs from the past. That's the kind of argument he makes. But there's some problems with that argument. Number one, Russia hasn't always been autocratic all the time. They have had these periods of democratic um, governance. And so it's possible uh, that Russians can um, uh, govern themselves in a democratic way. Number two, and this is why Putin's so obsessed with Ukraine and destroying the democracy there, because on the one hand, he says that Ukrainians and Russians are just the same people, same culture, same identity. Um, but on the other hand, um, if you, Ukraine is practicing democracy, uh, that undermines his argument back home about how Russians are different and how the way they need to govern themselves needs to be different from the rest of Europe. And I think that goes a long ways in explaining why he has been trying to destroy Ukrainian democracy for so long, and then finally decided to invade to destroy it. But then there's the third question that you hinted at. How many Russians see the world that way? And Mm -hmm. and I don't want to pretend to know the answer precisely, uh, but I do want to problematize things that I think people read in the in the papers. You know, people read the newspapers and you see this opinion polls that, you know, 60, 70 percent of Russians support Putin and they support his war. Well, let me break that down for you a little bit. Uh, first of all, the non-respondence rate um, and Senator, you, you know a little bit about polling. Uh, imagine uh, a poll uh, in which the non-respondence rate is over 90%, because that's what's okay. happening in yeah. Putin's Russia today. You know, who, who wants to answer truthfully a question in Putin's Russia? Uh, only right. 10% of the population. And you can imagine the ones that want to answer that truthfully are, are more likely to be Putin supporters. So I think those numbers are, are exaggerated in terms of what they show. Um, and if, if I were to break it down in, in the way I think about Russian society today, I think there's 20% that are just hardcore Putin supporters, no matter what. There's another 20% that are in uh, complete opposition to Putin, no matter what. Uh, their leaders, by the way, are in jail right now, Alexei Navalny being the, the, the leader of them. 
And then the 60% in between, I think it's just the, the right way to think about them is they're apolitical. You know, they, they just want to get on with their lives. They don't, they don't want to hear, you know, maybe this might sound familiar to you guys, right? Uh, there are mm-hmm. some Americans like this. So you're just like, I don't want to hear about who's right and who's wrong, war, no, wrong. I just want to, I just want to get on with my life. And, and so those people, I would say, have been uh, supporting Putin in a shallow way because there's no alternative, right, after 22 years of dictatorship. And they kind of supported the war in a shallow way in the beginning. And then things changed last month. Uh, as one of my Russian friends said to me, uh, she said to me, Mike, the war for us didn't begin in February. That's when Putin invaded Ukraine. The war for us began in, our, in September when he called for the uh, drafting, um, conscripting of 300,000 Russians, Russian men. And yeah. that... That middle growth that has been kind of apolitical in the middle, suddenly they're sitting around the kitchen table thinking, you know, what are we going to do with our son, Volodya? Are we going to send him to the war? Are we going to drive him to the the Russian-Kazakhstan border and let him leave and and avoid the draft? And to the best of our knowledge today, as many Russians have fled the country as have joined the draft since he announced it, that says a little something about how soft those numbers of support for Putin might be. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right, Ambassador. I remember that uh, that poll. It's the same poll we used to uh, in 2016 to declare that Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but let me ask you, what about these? What about the new players that are? are how much of an impact are they having? Iran, for example, who we recently found out is not only sending drones, but also sending military personnel. And Turkey, who has seemed to step up to the plate on the side of Ukraine. So how much uh, difference do you think these, these players are making? It's interesting, right? Uh, things are changing in the, uh, as a result of this war. It's some pretty subtle, interesting, and I would have, in the case of Turkey, I would say unexpected ways. So, so first with Turkey. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, they have a Erdogan uh, has a pretty complicated relationship with Putin. It's sometimes cooperative, sometimes combative. But when it comes to uh, supplying drones that the Ukrainian army needs, uh, Turkey has been, you know, a very significant supplier uh, to the Ukrainians, and they're very grateful uh, to that support. Um, Iran, you know, Russia has been running out of weapons, right? They, they have, they've gotten in some pretty desperate situations. Um, very strikingly, the Chinese have not stepped in uh, to help them. Um, and I think that's been a big disappointment for uh, Mr. Putin, that the Chinese, Xi Jinping not only hasn't supplied, supplied uh, weapons, he's barely supplied any diplomatic support, Um you know, when there's a vote at the United no. Nations, uh, the Chinese abstain. They do not support Russia. So so he's run out of, uh, of people that can help him, and now he's come to rely on the Iranians. Um, now, remember, they've been allied uh, in Syria for many years, fighting on the same side in that horrible, tragic civil war. Um, so it's not like this came out of nowhere, but the fact that they have supplied these very uh, inexpensive drones uh, that are hard for the Ukrainians to shoot down. They're, they're shooting down quite a few of them, by the way, but they're, they're just being overwhelmed with their number. 
uh, it's creating a, a, a big military challenge for Ukraine. And remember, um, Mr. Putin is using these Iranian drones not to attack military targets, but to attack civilians and civilian infrastructure, basically to, to terrorize uh, Ukrainian civilians. And you don't need precision weapons to do that. You can use these inexpensive drones to do that. And the last thing I would say as a result of that, you know, Israel has been on the sidelines of this war so far. Um, disappointing in my view that they have. Uh, you know, President Zelensky is, you know, he's a Jewish president. Uh, there's a large Jewish population in Ukraine that is being uh, terrorized again by Mr. Putin. Um, but the, the introduction of these Iranian drones is, you know, there's just the beginning of the reports just over the weekend, but it looks like Israel is now sharing intelligence uh, with the Ukrainian military about the best ways to defend against these drones. And I, that, that's another new sign. That's a new development. They were not involved, you know, just a few days ago. Yeah, I know that Zelensky has expressed the fact that he was very disappointed in, uh, in, in Israel. Uh, Morelia? So, Ambassador, um, given what you just said, um, with the lack of China support, with Turkey's support, um, and and so on, and and so on, um, it seems like there's you know a fragile sort of landscape for for Putin. So, are we close to a tipping point for the oligarchs to turn against him, or some kind of military coup? Well, how does how does that play out? If at all. Very difficult question again. It's a really hard question to answer. I'll give you my best uh, guess. But I'm mm -hmm. reminded of what um, a very famous historian at Harvard said, Adam Ulam, uh, when he was asked, you know, why didn't he predict the coup against Khrushchev back in 1964 during the Cold War? And mm -hmm. uh, Professor Ulam said, if Khrushchev didn't know there was a coup being plotted against him, how, how, how was I supposed to know? And that's the way I feel. So I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but let me say a couple of, a couple of things, uh, you know, to, to give some context. With respect to the oligarchs, the money people, the elite, the economic elites, uh, I don't know of anybody with maybe one or two exceptions in that group of people that support the war. Uh, this war is catastrophic for their businesses, especially if you do anything abroad. Uh, they're cut off. Their families are cut off. Uh, the way they used to live their lives has ended. Um, so they don't support the war, but they don't have leverage over Putin to get him to stop the war. I think that the, both of those things are true, right? Mm -hmm. Russia is not a, uh, a democracy. Uh, you know, right. if you're against the uh, war and you're an oligarch and there was, uh, you know, midterm elections coming up, oligarchs could be giving their money to the anti-war parties. Uh, but that they don't have that political system, so they don't have that option. And they most certainly don't have the inside uh, leverage against Putin to tell him to stop the war, because uh, in large measure, many of the richest people in Russia today are rich because Putin made them rich. Uh, you know, they're not, they didn't make their money, uh, you know, out of scratch. They made it out of having a connection to Putin. So they don't, they don't have any leverage. But then you asked about the generals. Um, that's a different category of people. Um, and again, you know, these are not people 
appearing on uh, television, giving their thoughts. They don't they don't do much press much press. They don't talk much about what they think. Um, but reading in the tea leaves and thinking about Russian history, uh, I can't imagine that any of the generals support this war. Um, you know, it was the intelligence agencies, right? The successor organizations to the KGB that were the ones that, that, that told Putin that this was going to be a cakewalk. The Ukrainians were going to welcome us with open arms. Uh, if we throw, overthrow this quote unquote neo-Nazi regime that, that governs in Ukraine, that's the way they described them. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously that intelligence uh, was flawed. And so the, I think there's tension between the generals and the intelligence services. By the way, that's a, that goes back historically. That goes back even to the beginning of World War II, where they were very divided um, in terms of their assessments of, of whether Hitler was going to uh, invade or not. Um, and so, I, you know, it doesn't mean I'm predicting a coup. I would never say that. But uh, dissatisfaction in those ranks, my guess is it's growing. And and without a reversal on the battlefield, and I don't see any way they can reverse their losses in the immediate uh, term, um, uh, my guess is that that tension is going to grow. Let me ask you, Ambassador, um, given what you said about China, that they're being reluctant now, they're being hesitant. At first, they seemed like they were they were on Putin's side. Well, how much do you think Nancy Pelosi had to do with that in her trip to China? Uh, I mean, to Taiwan was her trip was her was her trip to Taiwan a shot across the bow, telling the Chinese to 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 watch her step? You know, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. Uh, how those those uh, events are interrelated. Uh, I do know. I, I just happened to be uh, there. This is not coordinated at all. I just want to emphasize that uh, on an academic trip to Taiwan the week after Speaker Pelosi was there, um, and I can tell you that um, the people of Taiwan, we saw President Tsai and the government and and you know leaders of of all parties, opposition parties as well. Um, they were very appreciative of her trip uh, because I it. it you know, whether, you know, the elites debated it, whether it was useful or not. But from their perspective, I could report to your listeners uh, that they appreciated the fact that Speaker Pelosi uh, woke up the world about, you know, their, the situation they're in. Um, and number two, I, you know, I, I, there's well, number two, there's no people that want the Ukrainians to win more than the Taiwanese. Because they want uh, Ukraine to win to fuel doubt uh, within the you know the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party about the utility of using military force against a, a smaller um, uh, territory, right? And and remember, you know, the Chinese use a lot of Russian equipment, and they haven't fought a war for a long, long time. And and I, I if you're sitting in Beijing, I think you have to be shocked at how much unity we've had in the West um, uh, and, you know, with regard to support for Ukraine and sanctions against Russia, uh, we didn't have the splits in NATO that many thought we were going to have. And, and I give President Biden a lot of credit for that. That was not uh, preordained. That was not inevitable that we would hold the, the, the NATO alliance 
together as well as we have. And I hope that that is a signal uh, to Beijing about what might happen should, God forbid, they would use military force against Taiwan. Really? Um, I, years ago, um, I read, I think it was the obituary of Francis Crick, the guy who um, was one of the three who deciphered DNA, the DNA molecule. Um, he did a stint during World War II as a naval intelligence analyst in London. And in an interview, he said that after that, he never took a newspaper headline on foreign affairs at face value because of what he saw and read as an analyst behind the scenes and that it was vastly different from, you know, the actual political reality. How much of what you have seen in your career, um, particularly since you worked for Obama um, and during this um, war and this whole mess with Russia, how much of all that fits into the description of Francis Crick that I just said? Well, without question, there is a big gap between what you read that's classified and what you read in newspapers. Uh, I worked in the administration for three years, uh, for five years, three years at the White House and then two in Moscow. Uh, and mm -hmm. I read, you know, I had access to the most classified intelligence um, that our system produces. And there's no doubt in my mind there were, you know, there were things that I can't talk about that we I learned in that in reading those materials that were incredibly useful for the conduct of our foreign policy and our diplomacy with the Russians that you would have never read in the newspaper. So that's just true. And and uh, to those people that work in those services, I you know, I didn't know hardly anything about them before I joined the government. Remember, I'm a I was a political appointee. I'm not a professional diplomat, and I wasn't. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I worked. I worked for Senator Obama for two years on his campaign uh, before he became President Obama. That's how I ended up at the White House. Um, and so th th there is a tremendous amount of material there. That is definitely true, um, and it serves our national interests. I would also okay. say, um, in 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 thinking about that time and thinking about this this horrible war now, um, there are also certain limitations to intelligence that, that they get wrong, uh, or they're just limited in trying to predict, right? So mm -hmm. in the run-up to the war, uh, in, in, and let's be precise about what it was, in the run-up to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, um, uh, it was incredibly um, just uh, amazing uh, how well we got that, how how we predicted that. I mean, our intelligence community. Um, and by the way, we were right, and even even the government of Ukraine didn't believe our intelligence, and and that was great. By the way, I would give the the Biden administration credit for one more thing. They took the the rather unique decision to declassify that intelligence ahead of time. Um, and they did that as a way to warn the world, not just to warn President Biden. Uh, and I think they have been very effective at declassifying intelligence in a new way that I think advances our national interest. That's the good news on intelligence. The bad news uh, is they got wrong, uh, I think pretty badly, by the way, uh, their predictions about how fast Russia would conquer Ukraine. Um, 
you know, we moved our embassy out of Kiev and we destroyed our, you know, our facilities there, incapacitated them uh, because we assumed that uh, the Russians were going to take Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, in a matter of weeks. And that turned out to be really wrong. Um, And so I think we need to, you know, interrogate that and we need to, uh, you know, why did we get that so wrong? I I have some guesses myself. I think I think we and this is nobody's fault. It's just that it's the nature of of power. Um, You know, before a, a conflict happens, your best proxy for measuring the balance of power is just to count the number of tanks and the number of soldiers and the number of dollars spent. Um, but that leaves out the intangibles of things like will to fight, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and preparedness to fight. And I think mm-hmm. we, we just underestimated those more uh, fuzzy variables, right? We, we under, underestimated the Ukrainian will to fight to, to protect their own homeland. And I think we underestimated their preparedness. Uh, remember, they've been at war since 2014, uh, and they've been training uh, for that, by the way, with our own California National Guard here in California. Um, and if you talk to those instructors, uh, and I did you know, at the beginning of the war, um, they would have told you, these guys are ready. They're, you know, they are, do not underestimate them. So, so I would say it's a mix. Um, the other thing I would say, is there's another uh, piece that is hard to follow, and that's what the Ukrainians are doing. Um, I think they have been rather brilliant in the way that on the way that they talk publicly about things, and President Zelensky himself to rally support around the world. But then they also don't talk a lot about what's happening on the battlefield. We don't really know for instance, how many soldiers they've lost, right? Uh, we were talking about Kherson earlier. Um, there's been kind of a blackout about news, uh, reliable news from Kherson, uh, because the Ukrainians are, I think, rather sophisticated in, in distinguishing between what they put on public record and what they decide is in their interest to not publicize. Uh, I don't want to digress here, Ambassador, but given what you just said about what you cannot say because it's classified, how serious is what uh, uh, our former president has done leaving classified materials around at Mar-a-Lago? Is that as serious as we seem to be making it, or is it a tempest in a teapot? It's very serious. Uh, you know, when I saw the photo of those things, Mark Top Secret, uh, SCI, those are, you know, I used to see those every day. Uh, what that means behind that cover sheet is something that only a very, very tiny mem- number of people within our government can see uh, because it's so sensitive. So, so you know, even as ambassador, uh, they're top secret. Um, and and other kinds of classifications, we don't even allow that to go over our systems to foreign countries because we're so worried about uh, foreign powers picking it up. Uh, number two, uh, you know, when I was ambassador, uh, and this happened at the White House at, when I worked at the National Security Council too, but but every night uh, you had to 
close down and lock up uh, any classified material. And if you let out just one of those pieces of paper that are marked, uh, like I see you know, on the floor of Mar-a-Lago, uh, out even in a secure environment inside the embassy, uh, you you would be reprimanded for it, uh, you know, because our our security detail would go through every night and look for those things. And the idea of like just taking a bag of those home, uh, just you know, most people go to jail for that. Uh, I I don't know the laws; I'm not an expert on it. But as an outsider to government service, uh, when I came into government, uh, you know, in in 2009, um, a very long briefing about uh, how to handle classified information. It's extremely dangerous to be sloppy with it, not only because the information is sensitive, but the sourcing of that information is also sensitive. Those documents have, you know, dozens of little tiny footnotes in them that, that, that help the reader, you know, the president, the secretary of state, national security advisor know uh, how our intelligence community obtain that uh, information. Um, we don't want our enemies uh, knowing how we obtain that information, right? That that comes from all kinds of uh, extremely sensitive sources, from human spies, you know, what we pick up on phones, what we pick up by talking to other governments, and therefore, you know, when I saw it, I was shocked. Yeah, you know, I I was too. Uh, I had a brother that was an F one eleven pilot who wouldn't even talk to us about his plane. Because he wasn't supposed to. It was at at there the time. Go. It was yeah. top secret, you know. And he took an oath not to not to talk to anybody. And he didn't talk to anybody. So yeah, I know right. how seriously they take it. Uh, but back on subject, what about the new revelation that uh, Putin is talking about a dirty bomb that the Ukrainians? might use. Is that just an excuse for him to use tactical nuclear weapons? Well, I don't know for sure, but but based on previous that yes, this is complete disinformation operation. Uh, you know, tragically Putin's team has gotten really good at this, just throwing out things that are not true. They're they're not constrained by the truth at all. And so it they throw it out there, and then some people pick up on it, even Americans, by the way, uh, and begin to echo it. And then it just undermines the basis of truth generally, and it just becomes there is no truth. It's all just whataboutism. Uh, and I, if I were predicting, that's what this feels very much like that. I, I just can't imagine where they would get such a bomb from. They, you know, they, I yeah. think people need to remember that the Ukrainians uh, in a very historic agreement, because it almost rarely happens in history, uh, gave up their nuclear weapons uh, in an agreement, uh, the Budapest Memorandum back in 1994. So I don't even know where this would come from. Certainly, we would never give it to them because, again, the Biden administration's been very um, discriminating in the kinds of weapons that they are providing to the Ukrainians. They, they have made the decision, and somewhat controversially, um, to limit the kinds of weapons they give to the Ukrainians as a way to avoid uh, the war escalating to attacking targets inside Russia. So 
and I know that, you know, I talk to the administration fairly frequently. That is an ongoing debate that they have because, um, you know, they're, they're critics, uh, of which I am one from time to time on this particular issue, thinks they, they should provide these weapons. And they've, those are tough, hard decisions that the president has to make where, where to draw the lines. So this would make no sense in terms of if, that the Americans would provide that. Um, I do think he is trying to deflect attention from uh, his comments about the use, as you said, Senator, about you know the, thre- the very threatening things he said about the, the possible use of nuclear weapons by Russia. Well, yeah, and you would think that after Chernobyl, right, this is the last thing that would be on the Ukrainians' to-do list. Uh, you would think that they Good would be horrified. At, at at even the, the idea of it, uh, but that's a great he, point, actually. It, 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 if he does use if he does use tactical nuclear weapons, does NATO have to do something? Does NATO have to take a further step? Do, do they have to step in militarily? Well, first, I, yeah, right. So before answering that, first I just want to say, like, I, I hope he does not use tactical nuclear weapons, and I hope that every responsible leader in the world is doing all they can to to lower that probability. So, you know, I think it's probably still a very low probable, uh, low probable uh, probability that he will. But even if it's one percent, uh, it's incumbent on President Biden and Xi Jinping and and everybody to get it down to 0.9, 0.8, 0.7, 0.6, because the consequences will be catastrophic and and they'll be unpredictable, right? I mean, you were just talking about Chernobyl. We don't know what will happen in terms of fallout and lots of things can happen that, that, that will just be horrible in my view. And so I, I just, I hope we're doing everything we can to avoid that. But to answer your question, uh, yes, I do think, well, I, I would say a couple of things about what happens in the world, God forbid, if Putin does use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Um, first, there's, there's sometimes an assumption in conversations I have uh, that this will play out just like the way it did in 1945 when we used nuclear weapons for the first and only time against Japan. Uh, and I just don't think there's any parallel to that. Um, uh, you know, Japan had already been fighting for years and years and years. They had lost, you know, uh, countless numbers of soldiers. We were on the march. We were already, uh, you know, uh, attacking them. It, it was a matter of time before the, the war came all the way. Uh, you know, everybody knew that how this war was going to end. Uh, the society was exhausted. Um, and that's why they capitulated. Um, that's not true in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine uh, thinks that, that, that they are fighting a just war to defend their own territory against an unjust uh, dictator. Um, and if Putin would use a nuclear weapon, God forbid, my prediction is that the Ukrainians would enhance their military efforts uh, not capitulate. And I, and I just hope Mr. Putin understands that, too. Um, second, I don't, there's no world leader that will support Putin. I don't even think the Iranians will support that or the North Koreans. Um, so he'll be completely isolated. 
three, you know, back to our earlier conversation about the military and the Russian society, I I will be surprised if any uh, senior military leader openly supports that. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of uh, dissension inside Russia about the use of nuclear weapons. And then fourth, with respect to us, um, I would say two things. One, um, remember, by threatening the use of nuclear weapons, Putin is deterring the United States, uh, first and foremost, and the NATO alliance more generally, from providing the more sophisticated weapons. Um, so there's this weapon system called the Attackans. It's a long-range, 200-mile um, uh, range. Uh, you know, there's the HIMAR, which is a shorter one that we provided, but we decided not to provide the longer one because we don't want to give them this weapon that can attack targets inside Russia. I think if Putin uses a nuclear weapon, we'll, we'll give them the attackants, and we'll give them the MiG-29s, the fighter aircraft, and, and, and other more sophisticated weapons that so far we've been reluctant to do because we haven't wanted to escalate. Um, and we, we have not, we've done that purposely, uh, in reaction to Putin's deterrence, well, if he's already used a weapon, we're lo no longer deterred. But then, Senator, finally, you can see I'm kind of dodging your question because it's a really hard one. Um, what will be the kinetic response? I mean, on the economic side, I think there'll be, and there should be, you know, massive new waves of sanctions. My own view is that uh, this would be a moment when it would be the right move to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, and that kicks in all kinds of... Uh, automatic sanctions that would be quite devastating to their economy. But the hard question is about kinetic response. And I know that the administration is wrestling with those questions. Um, I don't know how they have resolved them. Um, and I think their range of options are from, I, I don't think there'll be a nuclear response. I think they've taken that off the table. And by the way, I think that's right. Um, Two wrongs never make a right, so we should not respond that way. Um, but I, I think the hard question is, do you, A, have a kinetic response, that is a military response, and if yes, do you strike the base uh, that launched that nuclear weapon inside Russia, or do you strike Russian military targets inside Ukraine? Um, and those are hard calls. Those are very hard, hard calls that I know um, the White House is struggling, you know, and gaming out uh, what they should do. Well, if this is <clears throat> if this is, in fact, saber rattling on his part, um, does it make sense for the uh, White House to issue a statement that we would, in fact, supply those weapon systems if he goes that far? Or shouldn't we, should, I, I mean, should we rattle back or should we just stand by and, and see what happens? So we have this debate, uh, the, the, the Biden administration had this debate about sanctions before the war, very parallel kind of debate uh, in my interactions with them. That was my, my perception of it. And, you know, I've worked with all these guys, you know, we were all, we all worked for President Obama at one point, almost everybody uh, in senior positions in the national security team for Biden including the president himself, by the way. Uh, so 
Mm -hmm. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk to them about this. And in the run-up to the war, they were having this debate about sanctions. Should we announce them ahead of time or not? I personally thought they should uh, because, you know, that makes it so they know what the penalty is, right? Um, and, And I think in retrospect, we now know that Putin didn't think we were going to do what we did. He thought we were going to respond in 2022 the way we responded in 2014. Um, and in, I, I think it would have it maybe would have helped to deter him had we been more uh, clear about that. But they chose not to, principally because they were worried that if we started that debate with our allies, we would start arguing amongst ourselves about what we were going to do and what we wouldn't do, and that that would not be a, a good look. This one, however, I think is a little different because the stakes are so high. And and my recommendation would be not to make it public. I don't think you need to make it public, but I would communicate in private channels uh, what we intend to do if he uses a nuclear weapon. Um, and... Uh, and that then ties our hands too. By the way, that that is that makes it so we don't have to uh, deliberate about what we're going to do. It's like, okay, he did this. We said we're going to do this stuff. Now, now we have to do it. And I'll let them decide what what the what is. But I think it helps. I actually think if you're trying to deter an action as catastrophic as this, the more you can communicate about your response. Uh, the more likelihood deterrence would work. Well, let me ask you, we're starting to run out of time right now, and I want to talk about your book for a minute, your latest book from Cold Water Hot Peace. Uh, tell us what that's about. How is our relationship? I know this is a big question, but how has our relationship substantially changed uh, from the Cold War to to? Uh, where we stand now. Well, in, in essence, that's what I was, that's what the book is about. Uh, and it's a, it's a his, history of the end of the cold war to our present conflict. Um, and laced through it is, is my own kind of autobiographical, uh, you know, experience with those different pieces of that history. I, I was a student in the Soviet Union in the 80s, learning Russian. Uh, I was then, you know, living in the Soviet Union in 1990-91 when the Soviet Union collapsed. I went back to Russia in uh, 92 to to work for uh, an American organization. It's called the, the National Democratic Institute uh, for International Affairs to help consolidate democracy there. And And by the way, we were we were welcomed to Russia as their guests. We weren't doing it against their will. You know, President Yeltsin wanted us to be there. Um, and then, you know, I, I spent five years in the Obama administration trying to to cooperate with the Russians on on issues of mutual interest. And and I, I part of why I wrote that whole that book was to remind Americans and other readers that it hasn't always been conflictual that there were these moments of cooperation. Um, and even in the, in the Obama administration, it was pretty late in the day, but but in the first years of Obama, when when President Medvedev was the leader of Russia, you know, we signed the New START Treaty, you may remember, Senator, because you guys ratified mm-hmm. it, um, uh, where we reduced by 30% the number of nuclear weapons in the world. 
you know, that was good for the United States, good for the American people, good for Russia, good for the Russian people. Um, we put sanctions on Iran together back in 2010. We supplied our troops in Afghanistan through Russia, uh, through something called the Northern Distribution Network. And in 2010, um, 60% of Russians had a positive view of the United States, and almost a similar number of Americans had a positive view of Russia. And, and I just thought I wanted to tell that story so that we don't have a fatalistic notion that we are just doomed to conflict with Russia forever. Um, and that's what the, the book uh, tries to chronicle. And how do we get it? We can, we can go to our local bookstore and buy a copy of this or get it online or how can people get it? It's, yeah, right. I, I think the easiest way is to go online. If you Google my name and from Cold War, uh, multiple places will uh, pop up that you can get it from big places like Amazon to small bookstores. Uh, I myself, I'm from Montana. Um, and I always encourage people to go to, it's called the Country Bookshelf in Bozeman, Montana, my hometown, to support local booksellers. They've been very good to me over the years at uh, events, and that's a, that's a, you got to pay, I think, you know, 60 cents more to get it from them than Amazon, but it's always good to support your local booksellers. Well, on behalf of my wife, who's a librarian, let me say God bless you for that. Uh, and, and by Thank the you. way... Good. In the 1980s, I was a consultant to NDI. Uh, Brian Atwood. Oh, you were? Yeah. Brian Atwood was one of my favorite people. Uh, what a small it, world. What uh, a small well, world. Brian was, Brian was the head back then, and I took yeah. my first trip to the Soviet Union way back then with uh, then Vice President Mondale, who was the chairman back yeah. in those early years. Those, those were remember. some really uh, glorious times, yes. I worked on the Mondale campaign, and that's how I got to know Brian. And uh, yeah, what a wonderful organization it was. Well, or still is. Yeah, and yeah, uh, we're almost out of time here. I want to ask you, what is it that we, Marilli and I didn't ask you? Marilli had to drop off a little early tonight. Um, what uh, what is it that we didn't ask you that you want to say? Anything? Well, we covered a lot. That was a fantastic conversation. We, did. we covered the big things. I guess I'd say two things um, to think about a closer. One we hinted at, but I always like to remind people that that Putin doesn't represent all Russians. Um, and, you know, in the same way that you would never describe a leader of America as representing all views in America, I think sometimes we make that mistake, at least sometimes we do in talking about these things on TV. We say, Russia thinks this, Russia wants to do that. No, this is Putin. This is a dictatorship. And I get strength out of those people that are still fighting for, you know, to end this war. Some of them, hundreds of thousands of them by now have had to leave and live in exile. These are friends of mine that live in exile now. And I have half a dozen friends who are in jail in Russia right now. We talked about one of them, Alexei Navalny. Remember, they're Russians too, they're patriots too, uh, and it's not just black and white that way. And the second thing I would say in closing is, um, you know, I think people need to understand that this is not just a war between Russia and Ukraine. 
This is a war between dictatorship and democracy, between rules of the game in the international system versus not. Remember, we fought World War II in large measure about annexation. And for decades, even during the Cold War, with a few small exceptions, we didn't have annexation, right? Because we all agreed that's not a, that kind of system we want to live in. Um, and it's a war about imperialism, right? It's a, it's a, it's, Putin is trying to recolonize Ukraine. Ukraine was a colony. Uh, the empire fell apart. They got their independence. He's trying to bring them back in. You know, imagine if the British were doing that, uh, uh, or the French or the Portuguese in Africa, how outraged we would be and how worried we would be about the future. And that's, that's my point. Like, I think the stakes here are not just about where the borders are for Ukraine. I think they're about the security of our democratic allies in Europe and the fate of the international system. If, if Ukraine wins, uh, it's good for Ukraine, good for Europe, good for our security, good for our values. But conversely, if they lose, then it's bad for our allies. And we're going to spend more to uh, reassure them. Uh, it's bad for our security. It's going to embolden people like Xi Jinping as, they, as he plots about Taiwan. Uh, and it's going to be another setback for the democratic world. So I think the stakes are, are pretty high here. And I think we need to stay the course and help Ukrainians succeed. Well, that's the perfect note to end on. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for all the work you do. Uh, I wish that I was uh, still in graduate school so I could take a course from you. You're absolutely fascinating. We uh, leave uh, our show every every week with a song dedicated to uh, the person that was on the show and, and, and the subject matter. So this goes out to Ambassador Michael McFall and the people of Ukraine. Uh, thank you again, Ambassador. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Senator. It's been an honor. Thank you.